Hey, welcome to the Art Condition Podcast, a weekly show that will discuss the business, community, and often undiscussed stress and mental health concerns of being a professional artist or even a serious hobbyist. I'm Joby. I've been in the tattoo and illustration professions for 25 years. My co-host is Moose, a data analyst, social media manager, and art agent. If you enjoy the content, please consider visiting the Patreon page and the show notes to help support the effort. Or if that's not an option, please like, subscribe, leave a good review, or just share with your friends. And definitely go visit the links of our guests on this episode. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. This week, we are talking to Kiri Leonard. Kiri is both a very accomplished artist and a very accomplished business person. So in this episode, we unpack some very important topics for the independent artist. We discuss the concept of a traffic funnel and how important it is to have all your content online point to one destination. We talk about how to make it all line up and feel natural so you don't come off as a high-pressure salesman. We also talk about the variety of products and services she has arranged and how they translate into a variety of revenue streams and how she prioritizes them for a healthy balance. We touch on a few topics you may have heard before, like Kickstarter, Patreon, and YouTube, but Kiri has some new insights for these, and it's always good to get different perspectives from different people. One housekeeping item. For everyone watching on YouTube, you may have noticed that we have gone back to the format of single full-length episodes rather than breaking them into two parts. Our intent behind making them two-parters was to offer a more digestible experience for the viewer and to try and play nice with the algorithm. We had mixed feelings about the results, so we're trying the old way again. But in the end, you're the opinion that matters. So let us know what you think. Okay, here's the interview. Enjoy. Kiri, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So let's just jump right into it. Uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into art. Was this something that you always knew that you wanted to do or you switch paths in there somewhere? How did you get into it? Um, I'm originally from Denmark and I'm currently living in the U.S. Uh, I'm a fantasy and fairy tale illustrator, um, an artist and creator. And uh, I did not uh, know that art was something you could do for a living until I was in my mid-20s. So I was kind of late at getting into it. I did enjoy drawing a lot um, in my teenage years, but I didn't realize that it could be a career path. And um, so in my mid-20s when I found out, um, in Denmark there's not a lot of art schools. Um, I did attend a couple there, but I wasn't learning what I wanted to learn because I wanted to learn how to kind of all the classic skills for um, anatomy and all of that good stuff, uh, which was not taught at the school that I went to. So I started looking at schools abroad and I ended up applying to a school in New York City and was lucky enough to get accepted in. It was Pratt Institute. And then I immigrated to the U.S. to pursue a career in arts. And it uh, very luckily for me panned out. <laughs> and you said that you had been doing a little bit of art prior to that? Yeah, like I always enjoyed painting and drawing um, ever since I was a child, but I was not very good at it. I never took it seriously until then. Um, it was just something I dabbled in as a hobby. All right. Well, once you 
decided this was the path for you you just went in full steam yeah yeah i did um i was playing it uh, on an online role-playing server called dragon coast at the time and there were a couple of other um, artists there that had studied at Pratt institute and i saw their artwork on the game forum and i was just blown away by it and then i asked them like how they learned to draw so well and they told me about the school and that's how i kind of had my eyes open to the whole thing <laughs> yeah is that the thing that like if it, would you say that that's the thing that like really pushed you forward like that's what the thing that made it click for you yeah, yeah. oh yeah yeah absolutely um at that point i was like oh i want to be an artist <laughs> And then I just put in all time and effort into learning how to do that. Um, at that time, I was working at a retail store, like a grocery store in Denmark, and I was very unhappy in my life. So it, it changed everything around. So then between art school and you're, you're a fully independent artist now, yeah? Like full-time, completely yeah. sort of like self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you kind of briefly cover your trajectory from like the end of art school into being fully independent like what was your sort of career path yeah. in between um so i only went to art school for one year because tuition costs in the u.s is extremely high and i could not afford it um i had to take out a, a big loan just to cover that first year and after that i was just like yeah i, I can't do this that's way too much um, so my choice was either I move back to Denmark um, or I just try to go full-time freelance. Um, I was able to immigrate to the U.S. because I had fallen in love with an American. We got married at the time, so I got a green card. That's how I was able to stay in the country. Um, and then I just started working as a freelance artist. And it was really hard the first five to six years um, it took before I was making enough of a, a income to really uh, help out with our bills and stuff. My husband took care of most of the bills um, in those early years. Um, and we lived off very little money as well, <laughs> just kind of scraping by. Um, but slowly as my artwork improved and as I got to know, you know, the business more and, and got to know other artists and things like that, I, I grew my my career and found more clients. And, and then it, you know, started actually working out really well. And what are your preferred niches to work in? And have they always, have you sort of like always known, you know, like what your focus wanted to be in terms of material and subject matter and that sort of thing, like your, your voice as an artist? Yeah, I, I started out um, really enjoying color pencil and color pencil is still like my first love. And I, I just, I love drawing with color pencils. But it didn't serve me very well when it came to doing professional artwork. Um, so I started dabbling in digital art very early on um, and and slowly transitioned into doing full-time digital, um, which is now my preferred medium, um, mostly because I'm just more trained with that than I am with traditional work. I can still draw traditionally. I can paint traditionally. Um, I've done acrylic paintings and things like that. I just enjoy digital more. Um, so that's why I'm focusing on that. And it has a lot of benefits when it comes to when you're doing client works and there's a lot of revision and things like that. It's a lot easier to do revisions digitally than it is traditionally. Yeah, I was curious because you uh, do your drawings traditionally and then yeah. I assume you scan them in and then you finish them digitally. Yeah, so yeah. 
how long have you been uh, doing that process as opposed to doing everything traditional? Well, I, I've always done my drawings traditionally. Um, so, so it's kind of like always, but then um, I've also like, sometimes if I'm on a really short deadline, I will just sketch digitally. Um, but I, I do enjoy sketching in hand a lot more than doing it. Um, so as, as a core part of my process, I'll say it's been like that maybe for the past five, five years. So uh, as an independent artist, um, you have a lot in common, I think, with every other independent artist in the world. Uh, um, not that this was specific to artists, but pandemic, you know, the COVID pandemic, like, really trashed a lot of things yeah. for artists. <laughs> yeah, um, it's been hard conventions, especially. Yeah, so I, it's, you know, definitely worth a little, like, you know, before and after, I think, to discuss what your life before COVID was like and um, what was your main distribution of attention uh, as far as like where you put your focus and what were your major sources of income prior to that hitting? Um, so my income is split um, between being one third client work, one third um, being my online shop and then one third being um, like conventions and um a patreon youtube um things like that and because of that because i've never been that big i've only dabbled in conventions uh for like the last couple of years seriously like where it, it became a sizable part of my income um so it didn't um cause too many problems for me with the pandemic um my main convention was gen con they did an online version and that actually panned out really well, um, the online Gen Con. I made the same amount that I made at the regular Gen Con. So hmm. that was great in that regard. Uh, and my client work, like I, because I want to be a fully independent artist, I've been paring down on client work. So I only have one client that I work for now. Um, and it's an ongoing project. Uh, it's been ongoing for a couple of years and it continued through that year. So also didn't have any impact that way. Um, and then in the spring of um, 2020, I took a marketing course for artists by Emily Jeffords, which was absolutely amazing. Um, it's really, it's that blueprint every artist wants to, how do you actually sell your work online? And I learned so much from it. So I tripled my shop income just from what I learned um, in that. So during uh, 2020, my in the last part of, um, of it, I, I was able to just sell a lot of work online, and that really helped out. What was that name again? <laughs> Emily Jefferts. <laughs> and the course is called Making Art Work. It opens in the spring. Um, there's a wait list you can sign up for. Her website is emilyjefferts.com. Um, she's a fine artist, but the things that you learn in her course are, uh, yeah, it's just a blueprint. You can You can apply it to whatever kind of work you do, you know, um, if you want to sell work online. It's about, you know, growing newsletters, um, uh, running an online shop, how to write your copy, how to take good photos, how to connect with your audience, uh, how to build your Instagram, all of those things. It, it covers everything and it's incredible. Um, it's a little bit pricey um, for, yeah. I think, for art students. It's about $1,000, uh, but you are going to make that money back um, many, many fold if you follow 
the stuff you learn. Um, what, it is, does what is it for non-students? Sorry? Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. I talked over you. What is it for non-art students? The price is the same. It's $1,000. She's meant for art students. It happens to be expensive. Yeah, yeah. Oh, like, I'm sorry. Okay. Art students don't tend to have a lot of uh, extra income. Right, 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 right. Gotcha. Uh, but it's it's a really good investment, definitely. If if you can swing it, it's worth it. You mentioned yeah. doing really well at Gen Con. Um, how did you uh, swing it to make as much as you did in person? Did you do additional stuff on Twitter or other social media platforms? Um, no, I, I've dipped into my Instagram. Um, I used I paid to advertise some posts um, on Instagram, which really paid off. Um, and other than that, I think, so if, if you don't have an online sales funnel set up, uh, it could be hard to utilize those conventions. The way Gen Con had done it is they build it a lot around Discord and they would link, uh, they set up this portal, um, online portal that would link back to all of the artists that were participating. Um, so they also funneled traffic to your website. And then I set up a landing page on my website and kind of made a, a whole event, online event out of it. Um, and I interviewed a couple of artists on my YouTube to promote it to. Um, and then I made special sales, um, like print bundles and things like that, that were available only for the convention. And then I utilized my newsletter um, to inform my audience that this was happening and build it up on my social media. Um, and uh, a lot of my fans seem to really like that. <laughs> uh, so did you do anything to um, adjust, like, have additional sources of income to make up for the loss of convention sales like in uh in general not all of them were as successful as gen con i assume well because i haven't done a lot of conventions i didn't really lose out on sales um i've only been doing gen con then i've done wizard world uh, austin which i stopped doing just because it wasn't very well organized um, and then I used to do New York Comic Con when I lived in New York, but since I don't live there anymore, I, it's just it's a pain to travel that far. So um, because I haven't been as reliant on, on conventions, it it just hasn't been a problem. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's uh, at least not the worst thing in the world, right? Like <laughs> all things considered. Yeah, I've been really, really lucky compared to the other artists in that regard. Absolutely. Uh, we. Uh, know several that have lost like like the majority of their income so it went yeah it's losing a minority of income that's good um i think what's important for artists in that regard is that to have that online aspect of your business where you are focusing on making sales online too so that when something like this happens you're not you know in trouble a lot of artists found themselves in the situation that now they had to start focusing on building audience and setting up sales funnels and all of that um during this year suddenly because that convention sales were gone but you had always been doing that you always been set you already set the funnel Just yeah i already had that whole structure built and then that course i took helped um a lot with how to utilize that better so just give a you know 10 second crash course what is the funnel that you have set up well, so you you want to have your um, hub, basically, which is going to be your website where you want to have your shop. And um, then you want to use your social media platforms to lead people to your website. Um, once they're on your website, you want to get them to sign up for your newsletter. Uh, the best way to do this is, you know, give them something of value. 
Um, in my case, I have, you can download a free sketchbook um, that has 24 pages of um, sketches and stuff you can't find elsewhere. So if you want to have that sketchbook, that's the only way to get it. Um, so that's, that's like a good um, way to get people to sign up. And then you promote that also on your social media platforms. Um, and then I have a YouTube channel too that I'll link back when I do videos. I'll link back to my website and to my Patreon from there. Uh, which social media platforms do you think are like most beneficial? Like which ones are most worth your time? Um, for me, it's been uh, Instagram. It's been really, really good. Uh, Pinterest, I heard, is really good long term uh, because people that are on Pinterest generally are looking to buy things. Um, and it's also, I think Pinterest is visually focused. Uh, it's also a platform that I think many artists kind of forget about. Um, it is important to have really good pictures, uh, for Pinterest. Another one, you know, depending on how hard skin you have is Twitter. Twitter can be good. Twitter is, can also be a really difficult place to be. So it's interesting that you said that Instagram has in your kind of go-to that more and more the common consensus seems to be that Instagram isn't so great <laughs> for our artists. Uh, usually you hear people saying, oh, it's just, it's not doing anything for me, but your experience has been different. Do you think that there are any, or do you have in, in mind any particular like contributions to that? Like why Instagram has done so well for you or just luck? Well, I think, you got to engage with your audience over there. Um, and this really goes for any social media platform. If you're not engaging with your audience, you're not going to see them come back. Um, and another thing is that you don't need to have massive numbers to be able to make sales. Um, you don't need to have like 100,000 people following your Instagram or your Facebook for that matter to make sales. Um, you can you can get by, you know, with 10,000 or or with, 5,000 as long as those people are people that really truly love your work. Um, so you got to find those people and then you got to make a connection with them. And that's, uh, that's, that's a hard part, right? You know, <laughs> finding those people that really enjoy what you're doing and, and kind of build that, build those bridges. Yeah. I think the majority of the issues have been like, uh, Instagram has so few direct links available to people. You can either swipe up, swipe up on stories if you're over 10,000 and you have that link in your profile, but it's not like Twitter where every post can, can, can contain a link that people can just click on. So it's not as easy of access to it. If you sign up for later.com, you can get a LinkedIn bio profile where they create basically like a duplicate of your Instagram where you can create links on each of those pictures then. So it'll work like you have a mirror of your Instagram and everything will link back to whatever you want it to link to. That's one way to do it. The other thing is, again, you have your website hub, which is, you know, where all your artwork and your shop lives. And then you only need that one link. So everything you do, you just like click the link in my profile. It's going to take you to where I live on the Internet. That's a good point. So this is maybe jumping ahead just a little bit, but you, you have your website as your main hub. Um, but Patreon is pretty important to you, too. So do you have any sort of like yeah do you have any guidelines as far as like when you direct to patreon instead of your website or do you find it pretty easy of a flow through from your website to your patreon 
Um, I so for Patreon, the way I use that, I usually direct directly to that from my Instagram, um, and it depends on what I'm focusing on at the moment. So sometimes I will focus on making specials for Patreon. Um, maybe I have limited edition prints coming out, or, or um, maybe I have like a special sign up offer for Patreon. Um, so at the time that I'm promoting that, I won't even link back to my website. I'll only link to my Patreon. And then maybe a couple of weeks later, I'm going to do a shop sale or something instead. And at that time, I'll link to my shop and to my website instead. So, link, so uh, it's one, like an episode. Yeah. Um, one more thing on that. Do you have a sense of how to avoid oversaturating uh, your, you know, your viewers so you're not just like... Do you, do you give a bit of space between when you're promoting one thing and when you're promoting an, another thing? And how do you? How yeah, do you, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You wanna you wanna make sure that it's not just like sell, sell, sell all the time. That gets exhausting. You wanna make sure you're actually making stuff for people that they're gonna be excited about. Um, but you know, as artists, what we're making is what gets people excited. And if you're making beautiful work, you're going to find that people are, are going to want, want it and want to see it and want to engage with it and want to be part of it. Um, so like, for instance, for your Instagram, a good thing is to set up a schedule. So say you structure out 12 posts, um, and then you have like, okay, so one day is going to be my work process. Another day is going to be my sketches. Another day is going to be photos from my studio. Um, another day might be like throwback to old artwork. Um, then the fifth day, it's going to be sales. It's going to be like, oh, hey, here prints you can buy. Um, or maybe if you're working on a new piece over a period of time, you show the process of how this piece is coming together. And then at the end of it, you can be like, oh, hey, now you can buy this piece here. So uh, you as we said earlier, you draw traditionally and you sell those originals. How have uh, the original sales of those uh, sketches, oh, sorry, not sketches, drawings been? Um, They've been really good. So the way I do that is uh, once a year, I have what I call a drawing adoption. And then I'll take all of the drawings that I've done during the past year, I mat them out um, and I put them up for sale um, in my shop for like this big event. <laughs> and then I send out newsletters. I promote that ahead of time, um, of course, to tell my audience about it. I show pictures of it as I'm matting and as I'm framing them, I'll show pictures on my Instagram and I'll talk about the stories behind the different drawings. I'll show um, the pieces, like the paintings they might have ended up becoming. And then, yeah, and then you have the sales event and that usually runs for like a, a week or two. And uh, people do tend to uh, enjoy um, traditional drawings in, in general. So it's not, there's not a whole lot of opportunities for people to get original drawings. And yeah, no, there's not. I, it's, I have a limited, very limited amount of that um, since I'm mostly digital. So it, it is a special item in that regard. Um, we do have a question here in chat um, asking, uh, just a quick start, like where, where do someone start when they want to build a website? Do you have a general uh, platform you suggest? Um, I'm using WordPress, but I would honestly suggest that you start with Squarespace because Squarespace seems to be very easy to use. It seems to have everything integrated as it is with WordPress. You're going to have to buy a lot of extra plugins. At least that's what I've run into and that gets kind of problematic. So um, I would suggest Squarespace. There's some good uh, tutorials out there for Squarespace as well, just for people who 
don't know how to um, start up a, score, a store on their own. So you mentioned that you're not uh, terribly reliant on um, conventions, but are, do you have any uh, pending uh, conventions that were rolled over from last year? Yeah, Gen Con rolled over. Um, and I don't know how things are going to look this year. Uh, they're still kind of biding their time on that, whether it's going to be an in-person event or if it's going to be online again. Yeah, uh, and it's really a, a pickle because if the state doesn't declare um, that they can't have it, then the convention still is kind of bound to try it anyway. Yeah, that, and that's troublesome. And I think that's why they ended up canceling so late last year, because they were waiting for the state to kind of make the call on that. Like, there's so much money and so many businesses rolled up in those big events. And I feel bad for the organizers, because it must be so stressful to try to balance all of that. If it comes down to it, I know Gen Con is like a, you know, it's a big event. And uh, there's a good amount of money for the artists, you included, whether it's online or offline. Uh, are you... Do you have any feeling on whether you'd go if they do announce it and not uh, announce that they're going to be holding it in person? Um, I'm not going to go this year, no. So fingers crossed that uh, it uh, gets called off again. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I kind of hope so. I just, I think with everything going on with the pandemic, I just, uh, no. <laughs> and another thing is that I'm, I'm a very introverted person, so I don't really enjoy conventions, and that's that's part of why they're not a big part of my business um, because during that time you're at a convention, you are on 24 seven. There's like a lot of talking and engaging with people and you got to hang out with people afterwards. And it just, uh, for me, it drains my energy so much. I just, I need my alone time. <laughs> so uh, what have you done to uh, tailor your career to uh, being an introvert? <laughs> Great question. Well, I work <laughs> at home in my own studio. Um, all day long and uh, I see my cats and it's great. <laughs> it's good to have a uh, studio pets, but yeah, um, it is. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if you are not introverted and you enjoy being around people, you may also enjoy being, you know, in a studio environment more, uh, maybe for gaming companies doing concept art or um, things like that. So you, with the internet, we have so many options for how we want to structure our careers and our lives now, you know. Um, if you do want to be an independent artist, you can rent out a studio space along with some other artists that way. So you do get to have that uh, human contact. Um, and although I am introverted, I have immensely enjoyed that my husband has been working from home this year. So I have had company, so it is less lonely because it, it can get very lonely when you're just working on your own. I was going to ask if that convention of Gen Con was the only one that you really still sort of set your sights on at all, or are there any other ones? I've been considering Dragon Con, and I actually got into it last year too, um, but um, I ended up canceling because the pandemic was so bad at the time, um, and they were very late to cancel their show, so um, didn't go to that one. I haven't been to it before, but I've heard very good things about it sales-wise. Um, and then... I want to look into more local events in Texas, um, just because it's so much easier to travel to local events. Um, I kind of miss that from New York City um, because there is so much in going on in New York, so it's a lot easier going to shows. Um, I used to go to Special Edition in New York as well, along with New York Comic Con, um, and there's a bunch of 
there's the Mocha Festival by the Society of Illustrators, and then there's also some local Brooklyn things going on there. So I have done events previously, um, but I, I've just pared down on it. You say there is a lot of stuff happening locally in Texas. You're um, you're in Austin, right? So yeah, Austin yeah, is sort yeah. of like the cultural mecca of Texas. <laughs> They're like <laughs> yeah. this like island of yeah this island of uh beauty and craft and great things happening there is that where most of the local stuff that you have in mind is happening or is it is yeah, there, like, yeah. Spread out um, austin san antonio which is only an hour and a half um away there's a small town here called georgetown which also have like a market once a month um, where they have a lot of creatives and craft people come out to, uh, because Austin is so big on artists. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a witches market where, um, I heard artists that are doing kind of like goth and tarot, uh, themed work, um, do fairly well as I understand. Um, and then there's some galleries and things like that, of course. So let's talk a little bit about, about how, uh, you've made a living as an independent artist, uh, one of the like, frequent uh, ideas that comes up is doing Kickstarters. And you've done, I believe, two. Um, the most recent one was two years ago, if I looked up the correct profile. Yes, that is true. Yeah, Kickstarter is a great way, really great way to do it. So uh, why haven't you uh, done more since, I guess is the question, if it was successful for you previously? Because I haven't finished the project yet. <laughs> <laughs> so they're kick finishers rather than kick uh, Kickstarters. Yeah, if you're going to do a Kickstarter, I highly recommend that your project is done and ready to go by the time you start looking for funding. Because otherwise, you may get burned on it, your audience is going to get burned on it, and people are going to be unhappy, and they're not going to want to back other people in the future. Like, it's just not good. Just have that finished product done before you start trying to fund it. Uh, I believe your last project that you funded on there was a calendar, and you have since uh, done other... Oh, I'm sorry, it was a sketchbook? Yes. Yes. Then I did poor research. I apologize for that. Uh, uh, so have you been planning on doing other sketchbooks since? or? Yes, I'm going to be doing one this year, I think, probably. Um, but I'm also working. So I've been working on this project called Montague Mouse for years and years and years. Um, and I'm hoping that this is going to be the year that I finish it. And then I can do a Kickstarter maybe at the end of this year or in the spring of the next year, depending on how the, it comes along. So with this project, uh, where did the idea come from? What, how did you know that you wanted to do Montague Mouse? Um, I drew him one evening in 2013 <laughs> when I first was starting out on my art career. And I brought this drawing of him to New York Comic Con. And there was a um, publisher for, I think it was Schiffer Publishing, that saw the drawing. And he was so in love with it. And he was like, you got to write a story about this character. You got to like write a story and contact me. <laughs> and then I kind of thought about that for like years. <laughs> and then I uh, moved to Texas. And the first drawing I made after moving to Texas was another drawing of this character. And then I was like, yeah, there's the story there. And then it just kind of grew from that piece. People seem to really uh, <laughs> yeah. feel strongly about mice in general, whether it's Mouse Guard or Montague or uh, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. The chat got like super fired up. Like you dropped the Montague name, and like, and now people are like, "Take all of Take my, my money." money. <laughs> mice are adorable. 
So uh, what are you doing to, I, I hate to use the word monetize, but to you know, monetize uh, this, this uh, story? Uh, well, it's, it's going through my Patreon. So my Patreons are supporting all of the projects that I make. So um, they're getting kind of first look on new art for it. They're getting painting tutorials on how I do the illustrations for it. They get to see some of the writing. Um, my patrons can read the first couple of chapters for the book already. Um, I also have an agent who has been shopping it around to publishers. Um, it didn't get picked up, unfortunately. So that's why I'm kind of like, oh, now I'm just going to do it myself. And, and that's actually okay because one of the reasons I don't do a lot of client work is because I don't like people telling me what's paint. <laughs> um, and it's the same thing with this, you know, like once you're working with a publisher, you, you gotta, you gotta be good at teamwork and, and I am perhaps not as strong as that. I'm really good at doing my own stuff. So. What is it that you're doing to, aside from like the aesthetic, uh, what do you do to uh, get uh, the audience to buy in to this world that you're creating? Um, it's really just the aesthetic of it and it's sharing the story snippets. Um, we as human beings really latch on to stories. Um, and I'm, I love stories. Uh, that's one of the things that always get me engaged with like other artists and their work um, and if you write good stories or interesting captions or your artwork is telling a good story, like, uh, I, I just love it. <laughs> and I, I find that with my audience, that's the same thing. Um, they, they read these story snippets and they connect with it and, and they just kind of fall in love with that world that's being created. It's, it's like world building, you know? So, uh, where did your uh, narrative background come from, uh, to support this endeavor? Um, growing up in Denmark, um, there's like a lot of folklore and fairy tales. Um, I think the most famous Dane is probably H.C. Anderson, <laughs> fairy tale author. Um, it's, yeah, it's just how I grew up. Like my mom always told a lot of stories. I had so many children's books as a kid. So it's always been a big part of my life. So as you're building the large project, the umbrella project of Montague Mouse, are there smaller things that you've done like along the way or is it just going just just leading up to that the the one big push yeah i'm terrible at getting distracted by side projects which is why this book is not done yet all right because i've been doing the calendars and the sketchbook uh, in between that um i've been doing side projects with clients as well um, yeah. And one thing is, you know, you, you have to make money um, to get by unless you want to get a regular job. So you're going to need to have these side projects as a way to, you know, pay your bills. The uh, calendar, I imagine, is one of the uh, side projects that you do regularly. Yeah. Yeah. Are these illustrations that you do along the way normally and you just put them into, I, I hate to use the word just, but you put them into the calendar and uh, it's not, not a whole lot more extra work or is it you do extra illustrations so that you can have a calendar? So what you first said would be the smart way to do a calendar and I really <laughs> recommend that that's how artists do that going forward. That's not how I've done it up until this year. Um, I, I made personal projects out of creating 12 illustrations for calendars. Um, the first one I did was a fairy pinup calendar, which was in 2012. And I just sold that in my shop at the time. It didn't make a lot of money. I didn't have a very large audience and my work was not that good back then. So, but it paid for itself. And then a couple of years later, I did one with trolls that did a little better. Um, also just sold that in my shop. Um, and uh, then I did a unicorn calendar, which was one of my 
was that my first Kickstarter? I think it might have been. Um, and that one did really well in Kickstarter. Uh, it made about fourteen thousand um, dollars. Sold a lot of copies of it, um, and it. Uh, after that, a lot of people reached out to me to hire me for doing unicorn-related uh, client work. So that was awesome. Uh, so yeah, personal projects, really good way to go. Um, one thing is, you know, when you're starting out, at least don't do personal projects that are like, oh, I'm going to write and illustrate my own book, like I did with my Montague books, <laughs> because it's too big when you're just starting out. It's too big. You're going to get overwhelmed. You're not going to finish it. Uh, and, and you're going to beat yourself up. So do smaller projects like a calendar. A calendar is like a great personal project to start with. What are some other ideas that you would have for um, if they're not able to put together 12 illustrations for a calendar, what, what else could someone uh, do? Just brainstorming. Um, you could do a portrait series. You could, um, if there's a fairy tale you really like, um, illustrate that. Pick like some of the scenes from your favorite story or your favorite movie. Make a series um, of that. Of course, be careful with fan art because there's like the whole you can't sell that. <laughs> um, that's why fairy tales are great because they're not copyrighted. Um, and um, you could do a postcard series. You could just do a poster series. Um, do like three or five illustrations of posters that go really nicely together. Um, do a series of book covers from your favorite books, perhaps. Um, make a series of mugs could be fun or a series of pins. Like there are so many. Do some fun t-shirt designs. There's so much you can do. Yeah, I think uh, the I, the problem is like... Uh when someone actually needs to do things, it's that's, that's the time when they're like, I have no ideas. Yeah. That's when your creativity and your brainstorming power yeah. seems to just nosedive. You're like, I, I hate money, money, money. <laughs> I, I'm a big proponent of hiring yourself or picking yourself. You know, if you want clients to hire you to do a project, you really have to be able to do projects on your own too. You got to be able to be your own client and hire yourself to do a good job. Because if you can't do a good job for yourself, how are you going to do a good job for clients? It's interesting that you just said, um, you know, don't take on a really large project as as a one of your first personal projects. Because I I've I know you've also done a, a tarot deck in the in the past, and yeah. <laughs> So I've recently become very inspired and gripped with the uh, desire to do a tarot deck. <laughs> it is one of the first projects. That, what's that? It's a great thing to do. It's a great thing to do, though. Um, if you can, you know, if you can sit down and do 79 illustrations, that's a lot of work. Um, if you can hold yourself to that and make deadlines for yourself, I say do it. Tarot is a great thing to do. Um, it has a massive built-in fan base already, which is awesome. So that makes it easier to monetize. Um, and uh, it, it's very straightforward because you basically, you get the right away tarot deck, which is the template basically for tarot. Um, you study, you know, the symbolism in those cards and you use that as your guide for creating your illustrations. Yeah. And I've also been trying to brainstorm ideas and I, and I think this, you know, could maybe be useful too, that if you do have a larger project breaking it out into smaller things along the way uh, can be useful because i'm you know think kind of sort of what you were just saying with you know make a series of of posters or whatever you know so i'm thinking of like well how can i 
break the larger 78 cards down into you know sections or groupings of posters or postcards and stuff like that so it you know that could maybe be a way that or i'm hoping my plan is and (laughs) i'm hoping that it pans out so i can use it as like a you know a proof of functionality that a larger project can only almost be made more manageable by chunking it into smaller ones and then making those chunks offerings in themselves yeah absolutely um with with tarot you know specifically you if you want to start out breaking it into smaller things you start with the major arcana because those are the most popular cards and the ones with um that people are most familiar with and then you you can you know pick the cards that speak the most to you say pick five or ten or however many of them um, that you think speak the most and do a series with them starting with that and you'd be like oh this is going to be a poster series for now but if if it uh has interest you can keep going and actually make the cards off of it and not to make this about my tarot project i was wanting to tie that back into the montague mouse thing um are you how close are you to like being like done with that and ready to go or do you still have a ways to go and I have a ways to go. I have half of the story is written. I have the full outline of how the story is going to go. So my goal is to have the rest of it written by March um, or April, and then I'm going to do the artwork. I have about, I think, maybe 25 to 30 illustrations for it at this point. Um, And I want to do at at least double that, if not more. Um, I'll find that number out as I have the story written out. How do you you find the balance between how how many illustrations you need relative to the story points. I just kind of like feel my way through that, um, which is not necessarily the best way of doing it. Uh, Because as I'm writing, you know, I see these scenes in my head and then I'll be like, oh, this one would be really fun to illustrate. Um, Problem is that then the next scene would also be really fun to illustrate and the next one and the next one. And suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm going to have 200 illustrations. That's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. (laughs) Do you have anything similar in mind for chunking that into smaller things, or is it just going to be what it is when it comes out? It's just going to be what it is. You know, once the writing is done, I can pick out, okay, what are the key scenes here? Um, there's going to be at least one illustration for every chapter in it, if not more. Um, so then I'm just going to list down what these illustrations are going to be and then just get to work. Um, Shane in the chat had a question related to this. Um, he said, does Kiri find herself having an idea about a side project and being more excited about it than her main project? And is there any fatigue from having one main project for several years? Oh my goodness, yes. Let me introduce you to my other now main project, Locks of Legend. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Which, um, you know, I had Montague, I was working on it, I was happy. I had my whole um, career for years planned out around that. And then, boom, the legend popped up in my head. And then I felt like I had split personality. And I was so frustrated because the voice of it is so different from Montague. And, and, but I love it. I love it so much. I'm so in love with it. And I just want to work on it all the time. But I need to get Montague done. Do you have a... And uh, so you're putting off this other, you're putting off this other idea. Uh, are you keeping track of, like, your ideas for it or how do you like maintain that passion for it while you're working on the other project? So it's spurred from a D and D campaign and we play D and D, um, 
every week basically so you know it it's kept alive that way another thing is that i haven't been able to stop myself from working on it so i actually have like over 200 pages written for that story already and i have i have all of the artwork planned out for that story already and i've done a good chunk of it too um so i'm kind of working on two big projects right now um which is which is difficult because you run up against you know do i have enough time to get everything done and then have client work and all the other little things i'm working on in between that um so it's it's definitely challenging um there is absolutely some fatigue especially when you know you're working on one thing you're really excited about but you feel guilty over that you're not working on the other thing that you feel like you should be working on um and i i think that's just being human you know it's just sometimes we fall in love with stuff and we just can't help ourselves for sure yeah um do you have any particular like time management things that you implement to keep yourself on track to make sure that Montague Mouse doesn't become totally abandoned, you know, like some scheduling things where you're like, this is the time that I have to work on this. Deadlines are going to be like your friend here. And a lot of people are always like, oh, deadlines are the worst, but really deadlines are the best. (laughs) Because if you don't have a deadline, you can just be like, oh, I'll work on it tomorrow. I'll work on it tomorrow. And, And suddenly years have passed and nothing have gotten done. So set deadlines, set hard deadlines for yourself and hold yourself accountable. Um, schedule out, you know, when you want to have what done um, during your week, you know, find out how much time you have to spend on art and then portion that out. So for me, that means that um, on Monday, I'll do client work. Tuesday, I'll work on my personal project. Wednesday, I'm going to do administrative tasks, for instance. Um, then Thursday, I'm going to be doing client work again. Friday, I'm going to do personal um, so that way you kind of like, okay, so those are. So I know that we, you mentioned that you do a variety of uh, side projects, um, but they're all like a different amounts of effort and they're all different amounts of like payoff. Uh, were there any uh, that stand out to you as being really good reward of payoff to uh, effort? Uh, yeah, the unicorn calendar, you know, it's 12, 12 illustrations. Um, which accumulated in a Kickstarter, I was able to sell the original drawings along with other uh, unicorn themed drawings I also had done. Um, And then I was able to sell the calendar in my shop for the following year and make prints from it um, to large prints that were larger than the calendar. So 12 illustrations like hand out to, you know, make over $20,000 total, um, probably even more. I don't have like the actual... (laughs) The full tally because it's been years um but yeah great payoff on that um whereas something like the sketchbook like i i kind of i love sketchbooks i really love sketchbooks um but i felt that it ended up taking so much time to fill out the pages that i was spending time doing these sketches um to fill it up and and to make it an interesting book rather than working on my main projects um, so I ended up kind of struggling with that a little bit. Um, the nice thing about sketchbooks though, is again, you have it to sell for years and years. It's a great way to give people a look into your process. Um, personally with artists that I admire and, and really like, I love seeing their sketches cause it's so interesting to see those initial thoughts and see how the work comes to be. It can tell you a lot about an artist, just seeing those early raw pieces, um, 
but yeah, calendar better pay off, sketchbook more work, less pay off. Was the sketchbook something that you were, I mean, you weren't doing it with, with the intent of it being a product that you would sell? Like, was it just like a personal sketchbook that you had? And then at the end of it, you just used what you had accumulated as something that you could then compile into it? Or were you like, okay, starting out, this is my idea for what this will be at the end of it? Well, it's a collection of all of my sketches from the last five years. Um, so I put it together with the intention of selling it, uh, but it was work that I had already done and that was just sitting and not being used that I was like, oh, why don't I compile all of this and actually make a nice thing out of it? Oh, I see. Okay. So when you say like the, the work was more just like going back into your backlog and finding the stuff that you wanted to compile into it. I also wanted to have new drawings for it just okay. to, because a lot of drawings like people on my Patreon, for instance, had already seen. So I wanted to make sure there was some new stuff that they could, um, for them, but also to have original drawings to sell for the Kickstarter. So uh, many artists have a problem where uh, they're scared to try something new. Like uh, they're afraid if they, they've never drawn unicorns or, or posted uh, unicorns uh, publicly, they don't know if the audience will like the unicorns that they draw. Is it a matter of like taking that risk and uh, putting out the 12 illustrations of a unicorn calendar or stick to what you know or try something that you're passionate about and see how that works? What, what advice would you give to somebody who needs to try something new? Well, if you're an artist, um, I am going to assume that you are first and foremost an artist because you love making art and you probably started out loving making art for yourself. Um, and it's because you have something inside you that you you want to express, you want to, you know, show these things that that are in you, um, things that are meaningful to you. So it doesn't really, it shouldn't matter how your audience initially reacts, because they can't see the full scope of what you're going to create. Um they don't have the ideas and the map in your head. They don't know what universe you're going to be bringing to life. So you got to like push through that and, and do your work and make the thing because they don't know what the thing is until you've made it. You got to, you're the guide. You have to show them by making this work. And I think that uh, Blake, uh, Art of Blake out, is out there somewhere. So think, I'm personally attacked. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Even, uh, it's something I struggle with too. And I think a lot of us do, especially in this day and age of social media, right? Because you feel that pressure to be like, oh, people really like seeing this thing. I get a lot of engagement. I get a lot of likes when I'm doing this thing. Uh, so maybe I should just do that. But if you're not passionate about that, don't get yourself caught in that trap. Um, and especially with something with with doing fan art and things like that, fan art is a great way to to get a lot of people um, on your social media quickly. It's a great way to get attention, but you can't. I'm going to say you can't make a living off it, but you can. <laughs> uh, but in the long run, is that really what you want to be doing? Do you want to be painting someone else's stuff, or do you want to build your own thing? And there's always a mix of it too, right? Uh, if you want to. Um... You can draw Boba Fett, right? And you can draw Boba Fett looking like the Boba Fett stuff that already exists. You can draw Boba Fett sitting on a toilet, and people will buy that. But uh, you can maybe, like, maybe you're more interested in Boba Fett as a uh, as a knight rather than as a sci-fi character. Well, Star, Star Wars is arguably space sci-fi, uh, space fantasy anyway. But anyway, regardless, if you're not uh, fully set on um, 
making the thing because it's popular the way it's made so they can appeal to the fans that exist already. You can make it your own if you need to. If you need to start, if you need to grow your audience, sometimes fan art is the shortcut. It's not always the best shortcut. Sometimes it is one. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, it can actually be extremely helpful um, to lead people into what you're doing yourself. You know, if especially if you're a fan of something that leads into your own personal project. Um, for instance, uh, Devin, Devin L. Kurtz uh, is a wonderful artist um, on Instagram, and she. Um, she's done a lot of anime fan art for, um, I think it's the last airbender and she gets like great engagement on those pieces. They're really beautiful. They're still in her own style and that helps like putting out the pieces like that helps her to grow her audience, um, to then when she's doing like her personal work, which the style carries over, uh, then you can introduce people to what you're doing. So it's a, it can be a great way to build your platform up. Is it, do you think that there's any merit? to that fear uh, that a, a lot of artists have that no one's going to want to buy it? I mean, is there, are there places that artists can go to where people just aren't going to want to follow them? Well, it's, it's not just a fear because it, it, you know, it comes from truth because sometimes you make stuff that people are not going to buy. Um, and you got to find the people that like what you're doing, but you also have to realize that there is a, there is that tipping point where is your work good enough? Because sometimes it's just not there yet and you need to spend more time practicing the fundamentals and, um, you know, getting good before you're going to have people really connect with what you're creating. Okay. So that's interesting. Do you, do you think that it's then just a matter of technical ability at that point? Or not always. Yeah. Sometimes it's a matter of marketing. Sometimes your work is already there, but you are not sharing it in a way that people are, you know, seeing it. Yeah, I can think of a, a few people off the top of my head who spend hundreds of hours working on something and then five, ten minutes showing it to people. Okay, that's enough out of you. I don't want to hear anymore. Yeah, it's exactly. nonsense from it's just stop talking. So is it just I, I, to be clear, is it never or like very rarely subject matter? Like, can we just clarify that? That like subject matter is probably just like not going to be the impediment for you, barring things that are just like. I can't clarify that because <laughs> it depends on what your subject matter is. It depends on which space you're in. Um, so, for instance, if you like to. Uh, paint gory skeletons there's going to be a lot less people who want to buy that and hang that on their wall than if you're <laughs> painting fluffy unicorns that's just a fact <laughs> you'd have to um, go to a metal concert or something i guess if yeah you find your people. go to a metal concert or you reach out to horror authors and you share your work on their blogs you gotta find these spaces where the kind of work that you do where the people that will enjoy that find the spaces where they're hanging out and share it there Okay, yeah. I mean, that's that's sort of the point that I want to to drive in is that that's the the key feature of that isn't necessarily that your subject matter is bad, but like where you're showing it to is more yeah, likely and, and the, the, the bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some place like Instagram, you know, then it could be about finding the right hashtags. Um, it could be about doing the right presentation. Um, you can do beautiful drawings, but if you are taking like crappy cell phone photos in like an unlit room of them, 
it's not just not going to look as good as if you spend time actually, you know, styling it nicely and, and taking a good picture with a good camera. So uh, we want to shift gears a little bit towards your Patreon. Like uh, it's one of the two, uh, it's one of the main uh, places that you want to send your, your people to, uh, to, to be able to build your, uh, your universe. Uh, how have you been able to uh, direct people, find people to, uh, to move there? Um, I think a bunch of the early patrons I had came actually from conventions. Uh, from doing New York Comic Con, um, I got a bunch from Gen Con as well. Because once people, the great thing about conventions is people meet you face to face. They get to have a conversation with you. So right there, you know, they're connected, um, and you are too. <laughs> you become invested in your audience as well. It's not a one way street. Um, so that that's a great way to get people to sign up. Um, other than that, it's it's been you know through newsletters and just showing your artwork and also. I find a lot of what people enjoy about the Patreon is that you get to see the process of how something is made. And to people who are not artists, that can be really magical um, or to art students because they can learn from it. So it's a nice way to, to learn um, from other artists. So I think that there's an issue like uh, some people will be streaming on Twitch and then to uh, plan to post that stuff to the Patreon. But since they've already been streaming it on Twitch, their process on Twitch that posting it to the Patreon loses some of its value. Is there any other way that uh, someone could get people to be interested in supporting their long-term project if they're already showing the uh, the process for free? I disagree that it loses its value. Um, I just put it on Patreon <laughs> and be like, hey, if you support my Patreon, you're supporting the time that I spend uh, here on Twitch. Do you stream on Twitch? Uh, fingers crossed people buy that, right? No, I don't. Oh, okay. We already uh, covered. She's uh, an introvert, and introverts don't stream on Twitch. Fair enough. Well, they I do. Heard horrible <laughs> it looks different, though. On <laughs> Hold on, Blake. I mean, uh, Joby, what was that, Carrie? I heard horrible, scary things about the audiences on Twitch, especially for women. <laughs> Most of that is uh, the gaming side of Twitch. The uh, art side of Twitch is generally really tame. Oh, that's good to know. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I haven't done it streaming. Uh, but really, streaming is just like running a podcast, and there are so many successful podcasts that are also on Patreon. Um, I was part of one for a while that also had a Patreon, and all of the episodes were available for free on YouTube, but they also had a very thriving Patreon that made quite a bit of money. That's true. I stand corrected. You've also uh, been po uh, posting stuff to your YouTube channel. Uh, what what was the driving force to start your YouTube channel? Um, it was just like a, it seemed like it was fun to do videos. Um, I really enjoy watching vlogs, and I enjoy um, yeah, enjoy kind of seeing people's day to day and things like that. So that's why I started my YouTube channel. Um, and it's it, I found YouTube to be a wonderful place to also engage with people and and to show them your artwork. Um, one thing about YouTube, though, is I guess like many places on the internet, you know, you gotta have thick skin because sometimes you're gonna get some really horrible comments. Seen some of those. Oh yeah, the first comment I got on YouTube was a step-by-step -step guide to suicide. So. What? Really? The first <laughs> comment? Yep. 
that oh was God. really pleasant. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, so that's the kind of space we're in here. But you also just kind of, you got to adapt a zero tolerance policy with those things. You know, these are your social media pages. Um, there's going to be a lot of people that, like, they don't know you. They're strangers on the internet. Um, don't give them your energy. Don't give them your time. So just you get negative comments, delete them. It's Fine. kind of the broken window effect, you know, if you leave, let them hang around. Sorry? Oh, no, sorry. I, I was about to start a, a, a thought, but go ahead and finish that. Okay. Yeah, it's just like the broken window effect, you know. You don't want to leave negativity around on your pages because um, it's just going to garner more of it. Right, right, right. Okay. Now I don't even I don't even remember what I was going to say, so <laughs> it's not it wasn't it wasn't important. Um, I think the the issue is with um, people in, in the comment section is they think that in order for their words to have any effect, they have to be hyperbolic, because if they are very even mod- mm-hmm. mildly subtle that you know they want to say maybe I didn't like this thing, you know they won't say it in a polite way because they're afraid that won't get the message across, so they just go to the nth degree to push it as far as it can go to say bad well we're also like you're under and you're very anonymous on the internet you know so you can post whatever i think a lot of people don't think that there are actually real people on the other end reading some of these comments um another thing is that we are so used to everything being customized for us and being made to to cater to us these days. So when you come across things that are not 100% to what you want and you want to see, like people are not very uh, accepting of that. So the yeah, you- people feel like everything should be for them. Yeah, exactly. And I disagree with that, especially with like books and things like that. Like I don't read books to see myself in the books because I mean, I'm living my life. I don't need to see it in a book, too. I read books to experience things that I can't experience in my own life. You mean every book that I've ever read wasn't about me? I, I'm confused. What are we yeah. talking about? Um, the, your YouTube channel uh, seems to do uh, pretty well like in terms of you know the audience that you have there does seem to be pretty engaged and you, know, you get good views on things and yeah it, I, haven't, um, I haven't been active on it for the last year really um because i kind of ran into like a moment of being like oh really concerned about privacy and things like that um so mm. i stopped putting out videos and also because it takes so much time to make videos it, it's uh i want to spend time doing art and not time making videos because yeah. i'm first and foremost an artist um, the YouTube channel did so well because I had one video that went viral that got over, I think, 1.5 million views. Oh, wow. um, it was uh, how I learned to draw a video, which showed my drawing from I was five years old um, up until the year it was made, which was 2017. Um, and then I kind of talked about how, um, yeah, how I learned to draw and, and the art schools I went to and just basically my life up until that point. And I took it down again because I wasn't comfortable with the amount of attention it was getting and also because of the thought that, oh, there's these millions of strangers that now know my life story and they don't know me really and I don't like that. Mm, interesting. Yeah, that's the introvert uh, coming out in right. the... Uh, yeah. yeah, and that's not necessarily like a good decision. I mean, it's a decision made from a place of fear, absolutely. Um, but I'm, you know, free to make those decisions, so I do. 
Well, it's maybe, maybe not necessarily good or bad. You know, I mean, it's it's what's good for your mental health at the time, and ultimately, that's going to be the, the the most important thing. So, do you have plans in the future to continue with the YouTube? Because your videos are very nice, and you know, it's it it is yeah. really nice content. Thank thank you very much. Um, I yeah, I do want to get into it again. Um, but I've been thinking about making it less vlogs and more just kind of maybe painting processes or something like that more focused just on the artwork and less focused on my life um i don't know if that's a good idea or not because i a lot of the audience that i have both on youtube but also on patreon um also found me through youtube as well and it is when you see vlogs you you feel more of a connection to people you know because you you get to see their life and and that's really fun so i don't know Maybe like do the 80-20 rule. Cut down the amount of uh, personal in the uh, the vlog down to 20% and keep that like surface level rather than going too deep. Yeah. That's a really good idea. So do you think that it was mainly just the, the viral content that started driving traffic to you, your YouTube? Or were there any particular things that you did to generate more viewership? Uh, no, it was absolutely the viral video. Yeah. Um, and... Um, I, I think that what made it go viral to begin with was the title, which was how I learned to draw, because there's a lot of people out there that want to know how to draw. Um, other than that, uh, you know, when it comes to things that go viral, people love to see um, process and development, and they love to see things that improve. Um, they love to see time lapses. So it kind of hits on that when you have like drawings starting out from being, you know, the drawings of a child to being the uh, drawings of a professional illustrator. Um, it's an interesting process to see. It's something you, I would love to see from other artists, and I think all artists should go make videos like that. Do you have like a full, like how complete is the catalog of work from when you were five until oh, now? It's very, it's very complete. Oh yeah, God, no, you're I, so much yeah, better of so a, much. yeah, you're so much better at saving and documenting than, and I am, and a lot of other people that I know too, they're probably like, um, where did the last 20 years go? I don't even know where that artwork is. That happened because I immigrated to the US though. Um, when, uh, like a lot, uh, at least in the later years, I, before that, I wasn't as keen on documenting everything, except I happened to save all of my drawings. Um, but when I moved to the U.S., I started documenting everything because my family and friends are back home and they can't be part of my life over here because um, I'm so far away. So way for my parents to see what I'm doing was for me to document everything. And that was also part of why I started doing the videos because I wanted them to be able to see like my day to day and and yeah, be part of my life still. Well, uh, I can imagine immediately after this uh, airs, people are going to start firing up their how I learned to draw videos and uh, look forward to seeing them. Please tag me. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to edit this section out because I want to do a, how I learned to draw. And I don't want anybody else catching on before I put mine out. Do it, do it though. I want to see it. You should all do it. We'll, we'll release the unedited version of this podcast to the Patreon and uh, it'll have, it'll, <laughs> it'll have that in there. Um, what, with that twitch thing you know if you you put your twitch thing on patreon then you can always do like hey patrons get to have like an exclusive uh twitch thing once a month and that way they get a special reward the uh the problem with that is you actually can't do private streams on twitch you can do private streams on discord though 
then just do it on Discord or do it on YouTube. Yeah, YouTube. You, that's and when I thought about doing it before. That's that's the the option and the the exclusive content with with Patreon has always felt a little weird. I mean, I guess you could do like bonus episodes, but I don't, you know, then it's like you're you have to. You know, one of one of the guidelines that I often hear people making about Patreon is is try to make as little like extra work as you can, you know, and like a whole other episode per week, even if it was like short and quick, just seems like don't do so it per much. week, once a month, once a oh, month, once a month, yeah, 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 yeah. Per week, that's that's way too much. Um, yeah, I've also thought about definitely a challenge with Patreon, like ending up. That's something I struggled a lot with my with my own Patreon that it has created a lot of extra work mm-hmm. where I've been like, Oh, I'm going to have to pare some of it down again. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing monthly wallpapers for people. And I found that like, I'm just not producing enough art to keep that going mm-hmm. after having like three years of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were also doing some uh, like uh, mail out stuff, like mailing out pins and things. Is that the thing that was causing? Is- I did. I am. Um, I still have the pins, um, and that's just when you sign up for the $10 tier, you get a pin. Um, that's not difficult at all. Um, I did uh, prints for a while, and the way I had that structured was not very well. Um, I put out three pieces a month. People could pick what print they wanted from. Um, and again, like I just ran into, I, I didn't have enough backlog of art to keep that going, and it ended up taking a lot of time with like custom because I, I print everything at home so a lot of times we're printing all of these pieces packaging shipping them out um i'm going to be introducing prints again this year but i'm going to try a different format of doing it and um yeah hopefully that's going to be better <laughs> what's this new format that's going to reduce the amount of a uh, conjunction well first of all i'm changing the size of them so before they were eight by ten which meant that once i was shipping it internationally the uh, shipping cost was really high now I'm going to be doing five by seven instead. Um, I'm picking out 12 pieces ahead of time for the year um, that I'll all have uh, printed by another printer right away. So I have them all ready to go. Um, and then I had custom envelopes made to fit them that are also five by seven. So it's going to make it a lot easier to package them and send them out. Going back to the YouTube thing real quick. Um, do you have any impressions of YouTube as a source of revenue or is that just not an option unless you have like the really 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 big numbers oh no youtube is uh great for a source of revenue um i ended up getting sponsorships both from um xp pen and wacom uh through my youtube channel and um other than that of course there's like the ad revenue which is very low so like the video that i made uh, that I had that went viral, which had like again 1.5 million views. About I probably made like five hundred dollars, which is it's not a lot, you know. <laughs> so don't count on the ad revenue unless you have those really big numbers. Mm. So you think it's more from like sponsorships and stuff that are going to be the, the yeah yeah of- sponsorships are are great. Did you get approached by XP Pen, or have you done anything to approach? sponsors on your own behalf um they approached me uh same with wacom um after seeing my youtube channel mm. and Is you're that- gonna find that if you start having an active youtube channel you're gonna get a lot of emails from all sorts of companies uh, and you're gonna be have to be careful sorting through them 
Um, Because again, like they're looking for you to promote their products. And if their products are not in line with, you know, what you want to do, then then it's not a good idea to do it. Yeah, that's my favorite email is the um, the the influencer email. It's like, oh, we see that you're an influencer and you're blah, blah, blah. And we would love to partner with you. And we're going to give you 30 percent off our bikinis. It's like just like try a little research before you send this. And <laughs> I don't want your bikinis. Um, are, so you've taught, you talked a little bit about the, the downside for YouTube. Um, was, were there any like big upsides that you could aside from the obvious, like, you know, sponsorship revenue, like were there big upsides? Um, was there any sort of like yeah, crossover like I, I think- conversion to your other platforms? Yeah, it had really good conversion that way. Um, I did get a lot of, of new audience members from it that, you know, they really latched on to the videos, really enjoyed that, and then sought me out either on, on Patreon or Instagram and bought things from my shop. So that way it is a wonderful platform to really build that audience. What, like, and do you have any other, like, points of advice for artists getting onto the getting onto the platform any sort of like do's and don'ts or best practices Uh, you want to ask with when you're posting stuff anywhere you know you want to make sure it's good quality um what you're putting out there Uh, be careful about your privacy just youtube is really a place where that's something that could be a big concern um and that both goes from how you structure your your channel um, to what email address and stuff you have people contact you through. Just, you know, really be careful with that stuff on YouTube. Um, there are some pretty horrendous stories of, of people that have had people show up at their house and things like that. Um, you, you don't want to put yourself in that situation. Um, and then I plan out ahead of time, you know, how much time you're willing to spend on it. Because again, videos take a lot of time to do. Um, Doing, being a YouTuber is a full-time job in itself. So if you're going to be a YouTuber, you're going to be an artist too. Um, you're going to do client work. You want to have time to do your own personal projects. Oh, hey, we're going to do a Patreon too. How about we also stream on Twitch? <laughs> How much time is left in the day? <laughs> um, so, you know, I pick a couple of platforms. Like pick two platforms that you enjoy and that you like engaging on and, and stick to those and realize that YouTube is one that takes a lot more time than the other ones because videos take a lot of time. Um, but it's also more powerful in that regard. Um, there are artists that are able to make a living as artists solely because of their YouTube channels. Yeah, I was thinking about uh, Modern Day James, for example. He does stream sometimes on Twitch and sometimes on YouTube. But uh, he went from, you know, he had a career, but now he makes most of his money through mentorships and tutorials that he doesn't even mention in the videos, but he still gets tons of offers so he can charge a whole lot. Yeah, exactly. Like YouTube is, is so powerful in that way. And uh, as far as privacy goes, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention a story on Twitch where somebody was telling, talking to their significant other who and didn't mute their microphone and was giving directions to their house. <laughs> So, um, it, it just have to, something that in this new world of connectivity, you have to keep in mind, there's always somebody listening. Sometimes you're broadcasting it out actively. So, oh, that's so horrible. <laughs> Luckily we were able to, uh, uh, 
highlight the episode. It's basically saving a copy of it and edit out that little bit and then delete the original. So oh, that's if- good. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I've had to delete some, some stuff from videos before for when I was working um, on a podcast, just cause there was some private stuff that came out in the video. So it's like, yeah, we don't want that out. I think I was going to say about uh, privacy. Um, you just got to uh, keep in mind that everybody's listening at all times. And it's not always, it, it luckily, if it's just the, the people that are with you on a live stream, they're usually they're your friends. So if it's, especially if it's an art side of Twitch, like I was saying earlier, the, uh, this, the gaming side of Twitch is really hostile, especially to women, as you mentioned. But on the art side of Twitch, um, Allie Briggs is in chat, and she'll be one of the people who'll say, like, okay, people Allie. on people on uh, the art Twitch are some of some of your biggest supporters, and will be some of your most diehard fans. That's awesome. That's really great. So you have a uh, right now. You have as far as we're summing up what you've been working on, you have, uh, I'm sorry, I know it starts with, uh, has Montague Mouse, and you have another project that is related to your D&D project. Those are your two big projects that you have in mind. Yeah. And you just re- released your calendar a few months ago? Um, yeah, uh, that, that was just like a little shop thing to to put something out. And so that that calendar is just my most popular illustrations from the last couple of years. Um, and I didn't have time to put it on Kickstarter, which is why I didn't kickstart it. Uh, and as a result, I've had, you know, a lot less sales than I would have had if I put it on Kickstarter. So if you're going to do calendars, yeah, definitely kickstart it. <laughs> How much additional effort would you uh, put it as to putting it on a Kickstarter versus just on, on your web page and socialing it out? Um, well, it's at least at least one or two more months of work because you're going to have to be promoting that Kickstarter a month ahead of time for it when it goes live. Then you're going to be promoting it during the time that it's live. Then you're going to be spending time shipping out all of those orders um, afterwards. Um, and that's why I just didn't have the time to do it. Um, I think for Kickstarter, you got to be putting in at least, you know, a good three months of, of energy and time. Is the payout additional worth it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. If you have a good product. <laughs> That's the key, right? So what other small projects do you have like in the, in the back burner that you for the small projects to keep you going through the remainder of uh, Montague Mouse and then into the, uh, the next big project? I'm, I'm trying to not do a lot of side projects this year. So... Um, I'm going to be doing my drawing adoption event that I do every year. Um, I'm going to have like Christmas sales and Halloween sales. Um, but other than that, I, I might, I might do the sketchbook. I'm not sure if I'm going to do it this year. I might, it's, it's one of those things I can do if, if I need to. Um, but other than that, I'm not going to have side projects this year. I want to just focus on getting this book done now because if I don't hunger down and, and commit to it, uh, it's going to be another year and it won't be done. <laughs> but you do have a, a side project. You mentioned to us before you started that you're going to be starting teaching. Are you comfortable talking about that at all? Yeah. Um, well, that's not a side project, though. That's just work. <laughs> <laughs> it's side from the uh, from the uh, individual. Uh, individual projects yeah yeah that it is yeah i've been hired by a university in ohio to uh, teach art branding uh, which is basically gonna be similar to what we've been talking about here you know it's it's how to 
how to do all the things as an artist to build up your art career and, and make a living. And that course is only one hour long, right? <laughs> yeah, I wish. <laughs> Gonna be three hours a week <laughs> for a whole semester, so it'll be fun. Uh, what topics do you generally think you're going to be covering? Have you already written out the syllabus? No, I have to have that done tomorrow, so I, I probably should get to it. You have to have that done by tomorrow? Yeah, yeah. How many How many weeks did you say? Um, like, what do, you, what do you mean, how many weeks, how many weeks the class is? Yeah. Oh, um, it runs until May, I think. Oh, okay. So, so it's like... I don't know, math, a lot of weeks. <laughs> but you have to plan out the weeks ahead of time by tomorrow. Yeah, but that's just like, a syllabus is not that in-depth. That's like an overall, you know, so it'll be like, okay, this week we're going to be looking at Instagram. Next week we're going to be looking at um, how to set up your website. The following week maybe we're going to look at how to set up a shop. Um, so it, it doesn't take that long to write the syllabus itself. Um, the more in-depth assignments and stuff like that I can do week to week as a, uh, as a oh, program. You know, okay, for- I see. So you don't have to have the like all of the content that you're going to be delivering in no, the- then I would start <laughs> You were the Syllabus wrong guest to talk like to about time management. <laughs> Syllabus is just like a brief overview of what the goals are for the class, what the major things we're going to be working on are, um, how grading is done, and, and things like that. Do you have any experience teaching prior to this, or is this your first foray into it? Um, I've done some mentorships uh, before that. Um, yeah. Uh, so these were individual mentorships rather than a group mentorship, right? Yeah, yeah, they were. Uh, how did you, we had uh, Paul Canavan on a few weeks ago talking about his uh, mentorship. So um, I'm curious about how you went about uh, doing your mentorship. How did you price it? How did you determine how much uh, time the person got and what did you cover? That sort of thing. Um, the mentorships I did were were um, learning how to draw um, with a couple of students and it was $50 for one hour a week um, and it was ongoing for as long as they felt like they got something out of it um, one of them stayed on for I think almost a year I want to say she stayed on for a long time um, and the other one wanted to stay on uh, for longer but she uh, ran out of money <laughs> she had like a lot of vet bills and things to take care of um, uh, but I'm still in touch with both of them, and um, they they really enjoyed it, and it, I really enjoyed it too. I, I made really good friends with them, so it was really nice. Yeah, that's, a, I guess, one way to um, make friends as an uh, as introvert. You do it through online mentorships. Yeah. <laughs> um, and this was Fundamentals of Drawing rather than some advanced uh, how to yeah, get work as yeah, Magic the think- Gathering. <laughs> yeah. um, one of them is uh, a woman called Sabina Francisco, and she does these really cute animal drawings. She draws traditionally. Um, right now, she's experimenting with gouache. Um, but because I did a lot of animal drawings and stuff for my Montague Mouse book, she'd seen those, and she reached out and asked if I would help her improve her work. Um, and a lot of what the stuff we went over was just, you know, how to get proper volume in your drawing and how to do light and shadow, how to fix the anatomy, um, things like that. But none of these mentorships were uh, related to what you're doing with your course. No, no. So where did you uh, start to build up this uh, 
base to uh, do your education, your uh, your course? Is this from your past experience, from your personal experience, and then a little bit from the the course you took last year? Um, no, I <laughs> I didn't plan it out at all. Um, I I was just asked by I was recommended by another artist that works at the university to the chair of the department um, because of some online discussions we had in Discord, and he was like, "Oh, hey, Curie's perspective would be really great for the students. So why don't we make her a teacher and we can set up a class, you know, based around these conversations that we'd had." Um, it was a uh, Bastian uh, Diham. I don't know how to. He's French. <laughs> Those names will all get you. Yeah, yeah. He's a French Magic the Gathering artist. Um, and yeah, it, uh, it, it was really interesting because his business is structured around just doing client work, um, whereas mine is, you know, based around you doing my own stuff instead. Um, so, yeah. And most artists these days are trying to, well, not, I want to say most, but many artists these days are trying to branch out away from being under the control of a corporate entity that has final say over what you do and initial say over what you do too. Um, and I don't know. I, it's, it seems like it's uh, harder for artists to figure out how to make money when it doesn't involve somebody telling you what to do. Yeah. And I, that makes sense though, because it's a lot to come up with just stuff on your own and find out you got to wear so many hats. Like one thing is creating the artwork, which in itself is really difficult and learning how to draw and paint, you know, but then you got to do all the marketing. Then you got to take care of all the taxes. Then you got to learn how to run a business and it's just a lot, you know, and, and maybe you're going to have to learn how to do proper photography too, or maybe you got to learn how to do videos to promote your artwork. So it's, it's a hard thing to do. Looking back on it, uh, is there anything advice that you would have given to yourself at the start of your uh, career? Yeah, <laughs> and this this is just personal to me, but uh, learn the fundamentals of drawing. <laughs> I I was very not very dedicated to learning that early on, um, and as my work suffered for that from that for years before you know I kind of finally overcame that hump. So this was it. Your uh, were you in the? It's just my style, gang, to defend against uh, things that people said didn't look right. I, I I didn't know that it was okay to use reference for a long time. I was like, oh no, using reference is cheating. It is not. Do use reference. <laughs> where did that notion get started? I I would love to know the like origin story of that because I like it doesn't even make sense logically. Like if you from... just like think about it. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't like even you look at like Renaissance painters. Yeah, they use reference. They had models, <laughs> um, but I think it came from people that that don't know how art is made. And I based that on where I grew up. I grew up in a tiny little village in Denmark, and um, I could tell like from comments my dad made and stuff like that that there's not a lot of understanding of how artwork is actually created. So. So my parents would tell me if I was like drawing after something, they'd be like, did you come up with that yourself or did you copy it from something else? You know, so if you're looking at photos and learning how to paint something and then you feel like, oh, I didn't make it myself. So I don't, I can't learn. And then you don't have a visual library and then it gets really hard to paint a hand because you don't know what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes sense. It's, I, I, it goes right in line with the you know the the power that the external world has over artists i say external world i guess like 
non-artists you know the people yeah, that you like still see that on social media today when yeah. people are like oh you're using reference like yeah because you have to if you want to make good work one the whole conversation about pricing like how much art should cost you know like what what your personal your, yeah. your sense of personal value yeah. is or the value of your artwork based solely on you know the opinion of others and i mean i guess the so psychology yeah there's so many artists that are underselling themselves um, to uh, young artists um, that are inexperienced because art is a luxury item. Like it just is. It's it's not required for you to live and breathe. You know, like food is. Um, it's it's a luxury good. I yeah. hear that, and I think the the uh, I hear the devil's advocate that's out there always saying like I don't need this, and I can either buy um, a video game for fifty dollars that'll entertain me for 100 hours or i can get an artist and i'm hoping that i can get you know 10 hours of uh, uh your time for 50 dollars it's just it's, it's like yeah but you can't <laughs> unfortunately they sometimes can that's the that's the sad part right you go look up on twitter and you're like um oh, what, I, what i've been doing is i'll look at the top post on uh r slash d and it'll usually be some artist then I look at their Twitter page where they're advertising their prices and it's under a hundred dollars. I'm like, how are you making this for under a hundred dollars? Yeah. Um, and I mean, for many young artists, it's also that they're building their body of work. They're learning. Um, and like, I'm not going to fault them for it because I, I think that's, it's a mentality that's so prevalent on the internet. Um, and you, as you get better at drawing and painting, you might run into that you don't have enough time to fulfill all of these commissions you're getting because your prices are too low. Um, and you're not making enough to make your rent and pay your bills because your prices are too low. So if you're finding yourself working like 80 hour weeks and you're still struggling financially, like you gotta look at, okay, maybe it's better to do two commissions for people that are willing to pay a higher rate than to do 20 commissions for people that oftentimes don't appreciate you because they're paying so little for it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a hard lesson to learn, but. I think there's also a rule of thumb for people who are um, using slots. I don't generally advocate using slots, but a lot of people do like those, like I have 10 slots open and then they'll open them with low prices and then they'll fill those 10 slots in a day. And then spend the next six weeks fulfilling those 10 slots. And it's like, what, what, what additional benefit do they give you being full on the first day if you're not getting to them for six weeks? You could raise your prices. And as long as you have one commission in your queue at all times and always are working on the next thing, it doesn't matter how many more you have behind that. For whatever reason, we can't hear you right now. I think your mic cut out, yeah. the it's a working now yeah yes okay um another thing is that rather than doing commissions like that what kind of work could you do if you're doing your personal work and selling prints of that instead right because if you're doing a, a commission for forty dollars why not just sell a print of something you actually loved for forty dollars multiple times over yeah exactly because with commissions it's really hard to sell prints of those um unless you're working for something like magic the gathering or D, &D. um whereas like if if you're painting 
some person's D&D character, for instance, it's going to speak very deeply to the person whose character that is, but to a lot of other people, it, it's just not going to have that same pull. Um, so, but if you can make personal work that you're putting your own stories um, and, and time into that people can connect with, you can suddenly sell a lot of prints instead. Yeah, that's another problem uh, with commissions. It's deeply personal. So the person that's getting it, that's additional value for them, but it's not necessarily additional value for everybody else. Unless they're, like, most of the commissions that I'm familiar with are people getting D&D &D commissions. And that's great for that person, but unless it's an illustration that shows, like, a, you know, an illithid as the dungeon master or something, then it's generally not going to be... Uh, something that other people can relate to and appreciate enough to buy as a print. Unless you make some kind of dope-ass uh, paladin that's, you know, in heavy armor, and then everybody's like, yeah, I want to play that character. That's a bit differently from... I, I don't know, but most characters will have, like, one or two quirks that just make them so personal that nobody else wants to buy it. Like, it has multicolored eyes, or, you know, uh, a modern haircut, what have you. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's that, and that's just the thing with commissions, you know, you... Um, but but you got to find out, like, is, is that what you want to be painting other people's characters? And some people do, and they enjoy doing that, and that's great. Um, go for it if that's what you love doing. Um, but there is also the alternative route of, of creating your own thing. Um, another thing is you can use those commissions to build up a portfolio to then submit to, for instance, Wizards if you want to do D&D stuff. And even then, uh, when you support the Wizards, uh, when you submit to Wizards, if it's not the exact style that they're looking for, it doesn't matter that it's the same subject matter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's another thing. Like with with them, there's definitely a style guide that you got to follow. I guess there is the potential to kill multiple birds if you want to. You know, you could be practicing your Magic: The Gathering style and you know trying to make prints on the other end and fulfilling <laughs> commission orders. And uh, maybe there's some room to do that. I don't know. Yeah, no, there's definitely like a place where where you can hit several birds with one stone in that way. So we're uh, out of questions as far as the uh, predefined list. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover today? I, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Is there any questions in the chat or anything? There have been, there's been a lot of chatter, but not direct questions. But we can always call out to the, the audience, like... Uh, Allie, do you have any questions for Kiri? <laughs> yeah, if anybody has any questions. What are you doing, Allie? Um, but um, it, thinking of coming to a close uh, relatively soon, and you've talked a little bit about your, you know, the projects that you have coming up or that you're working on now, can you just shout out real quick? We will have like all of your information in the show notes, but give us a, a quick rundown on the places where people can find you or where you would like people to find you. I'm kirileonard.com and um, then Kiri Leonard on all the social media platforms. So Instagram at Kiri Leonard, Twitter at Kiri Leonard. Um, yeah. Allie wants to know how Allie did asked. Lock the Legend start? Lock the Legend started on an online role playing server um, 15, 20 years ago and never went to Night's role playing server. And uh, I had a lot of fun with the character at that time. And then later on, when we 
when I moved to the U.S. and became an artist and all of that happened. Uh, we started a D&D group with some friends and I made a dwarf character that I just, I couldn't get into. And then the, our DM was like, why don't you, you know, play a character you played before that you enjoy? And I revived her and then I was like, oh, maybe I should paint her. And so I painted her and then I was like, oh, maybe I should turn this into a whole thing. Um, written book and all of that stuff. And then it just grew from there. And now I have a, a lot of uh, illustrations and, and things, and I'm going to be creating a lot of D&D content surrounding that project um, for other people to enjoy too. Nice. Does it adhere then to the world that the character was created in, or is it sort of like something new of your own making, a more homebrew kind of thing? Or It's it's a homebrew world, absolutely. Um, it's, it's based around our D&D campaign, uh, the story is, and... Um, the content I'm going to be making for it is going to tie into kind of traditional uh, G&D stuff, though. I want to make item cards that people can use, portrait packs, and mood pieces for their own games and things like that. Question from the chat. Why onions? Why not onions? Onions are really good for you. I love onions. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping that there would be some context for the inside joke. Um, so the character Lock the Legend is obsessed with onions and eat. She eats raw onions like snacks, like an apple. <laughs> uh, yeah, like an apple. She'll eat an onion like an apple. Um, like that brutal. was a quirk she had like way back on the role playing server because I was, I guess, I was trying to gross people out. It worked too. <laughs> um, that, and that then breath. it just became a thing with her. <laughs> just weeping, everybody around her is just like crying from her breath. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She was a barbarian with a low charisma back then. <laughs> that makes sense. Fantastic. And, uh, it, it makes sense to uh, delve uh, into the rich information that comes from a D&D campaign. I mean, that's how uh, The Expanse started. Yeah. Yeah, there's like so much. I mean, isn't Lord of the Rings just like a giant D&D campaign in a way? <laughs> yeah, and the wizard died halfway through. <laughs> Yeah, so shout out to you know D and D and its capacity to generate new ideas. If you're we were talking about where to come up with ideas before, so if you're yeah, looking it's, for it's ideas, a, start a D and D campaign. <laughs> yeah, it's storytelling. I mean, it's it's awesome, especially if you have like some good people to engage with. Um, well, I think that right. we are we are at the at the end point, um, and so we just have one more question for you um uh, unrelated to career or business or anything what's something that's happening in the world that you're excited about it's snowing in texas <laughs> there i mean we this is we got to get it where we can so that's is perfectly really? valid that's insane and you're southern you're like a that's middle Texas. It's not even northern Texas. Snow is here. It's so awesome. My whole yard is covered in snow. I'm so excited. I love snow. <laughs> That's yeah. a lot of snow. Yeah. 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 We got like four inches, I think, which, you know, never having snow. It's yesterday. It was like sunny and really warm out. <laughs> That's more snow than we had in Baltimore so far this year. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm happy for you, but, but I'm yeah, also it's, uh, it's I'm been also a hard worried. year for everyone. Yeah, year. yeah, I, I'm worried that that's just another sign of the apocalypse. It's, <laughs> it's... Uh, 
sunny and hot it's one coming. day and snowing <laughs> the next day. Um, well, but other than that, I mean, it's, it's there's never been a better time to be an artist, man. Like you mm. can you can make a living painting unicorns now, and and yeah, it's awesome. Well, what was awesome is getting to talk to you, and we really appreciate the time. Um, I really look forward to seeing all the cool stuff that you're going to be coming out with. And um, I, I say this every time, but I mean it every time. I would I love it if you wanted to come back and talk to us a little bit more specifically about, you know, the marketing and branding and all of the stuff that you're going to be discussing in this course that you're going to be teaching, because that's a huge part of what we like to talk about and help other people understand. So. Not to put you yeah, on the spot, I, you don't have to answer yes or no now, but uh, <laughs> I'm just putting it out there. But thank you so much for having me on. It's been really fun. Uh, it's been nice to get to know you. And uh, I look forward to seeing your tarot project because you know, now you got to do it, right? I know. You're going to do the tarot deck. Yeah, the more I that I say that, it out loud, exactly. Yeah, I expect it done in two years. So start planning out those deadlines. <laughs> and the How I Learned to Draw video. Yes, and that. Yeah, I, I want to see that. I want to see that next week. So get on it. Yeah. <laughs> It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Um, well, yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. I'm going to wave goodbye and hit the record button. <laughs>